Well, our topic today has a pretty catchy title, Monetary Death Spiral, The Japanification of Our Economies. Who better to go to than, I'm going to say the world, certainly Canada's leading expert on Japan, but on economics everywhere. Professor of Strategic Management at the Schulich School of Business in Toronto, Charles McMillan. Charlie, I've known him for a very long time. There isn't a topic he hasn't written on. There isn't a country he hasn't consulted or taught in. And he just has an amazing view. Charlie, welcome. Thanks for being with us. It was great to be with you. Thank you. All right. Before we start this conversation, was is is going to be a little complicated to say the least. Let's just get some quick, short different definitions out there so that, that people know what we're talking about. Monetary death spiral, or as you call it, the Macmillan monetary death spiral, because you've got your take on it. What is it? Um, in any economy, um, communist or market-oriented, um, there's two issues here. Um, one is the debt levels um, of, of consumers, of governments, and of um, companies. Mm-hmm. And, and the second is both the inflation and the interest rate. And so we're in a situation globally of extremely low interest rates. In some cases, it's negative uh, by country um, and uh, extremely low interest rates. Unfortunately, um, for the world economy, and the COVID thing exacerbates this, is the collapse both of aggregate demand and supply. Uh, So, for example, to do a simple example, uh, demand, uh, the whole leisure industry, travel, restaurants, or whatever, nobody's going. The, the places are there, uh, but they can't um, use it um, because of health reasons. This is exactly what happens in wartime. The second example is supply. Um, Air Canada, uh, the American Airlines, uh, the European Airlines, there's tons of planes, or tr- tons right. of travel opportunities, right. but nobody's flying. So. What do governments do? And unfortunately, um, for conventional theory, they have to spend money. And this is exactly what happened during wartime. Uh, In the famous example of the Second World War and Churchill's war cabinet, he didn't include the finance minister. He put that (laughs) aside, left it to John Maynard Keynes to sort that out. And uh, it turns out when the Americans weren't in the war, they became the creditor. They supplied a lot of the money. And um, it turns out Canada actually lent Britain uh, billions of dollars, most of it which was never repaid. And some countries are, are, have a lot of money, Japan being the extreme, uh, extreme example. Um, and so governments are having to work together to sort out uh, if the government have to spend the money to keep the economy afloat, where does the money come from? So so that raises the question here, because what we're hearing in Ottawa these days is lots of talk of modern monetary theory, which just means, I guess, for the Bank of Canada to print more money and use that money, not only for governments to spend, but to buy up government debt of the provinces of the of the federal government, because who wants to buy bad debt? So we're seeing this happen. 
but we're not yet seeing the impact of either, well, we're not quite at negative interest rates, maybe we are, and inflation still hasn't gone up, which everybody says it should in this circumstance. Is it just too early? Well, one strategy here is, is um, you know, uh, monetize the debt through inflation. And that's been the experience of any number of countries. Zimbabwe would be an extreme example. But this is the classic example in South America. But go back to the Bank of Canada or all central banks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, the Federal Reserve is begging the Senate to pass a bill to spend more money. Um, and But here's the paradox. There are a lot of individuals, a lot of government, and a lot of um, companies uh, loaded with um, cash. Apple, 200 billion. Warren Buffett, 200 billion. Toyota, um, the the extreme case of of, uh, uh, Japan. Um, Japan is a high saving country. China is a high savings country, maybe 30, 35% today. India, despite its poverty, is a high savings country. Mm-hmm. So how do you mobilize that, those savings into, uh, for example, assuming debt um, or spending? And the problem in Canada, the United States, but the United States is extreme case, um, it's been a very low savings country. And, and um, the negative savings is actually funded by China. China is willing to buy a bond from the United States. Well, that is certainly the thinking. This is a bit of a sidetrack here, but I mean, actually, China kind of owns the U.S. debt, doesn't it? I mean. Well, uh, Japan does, too, and and so does India. Those are the three countries. Okay, Um, so usually when governments spend, and this is what they're arguing right now, that we just have to keep spending because we need activity. But what we're seeing in some of these statistics is that it's not leading to economic activity or or actual growth in the GDP. Well, that is a really interesting question. And here's the problem. And this is the problem in the United States is the problem in Canada. Um, In 1984, when the Maroonie government elected, I don't want to get into any partisan issue. Right. The problem for, for Canada was very simple. Uh, stripped of all the footnotes and uh, fancy uh, conceptual issues. The the issue was simple. Canada had about $800 billion in debt, which included the federal government and the provincial government and their crown corporations, in some cases also the universities. So how do you fund that $800 billion? Well, the problem was we had, in that period, high inflation and therefore high interest rates. And high interest rates are necessary because to maintain the value of the dollar. If economic growth is less than the debt levels, you're assuming that um, something has to give. And how do you, in a policy sense, squeeze um, spending to lower the debt and and therefore the deficit um, to, to get ahead of your annual interest rate payment. So why are a lot of families in the squeeze today? Even if they have a job, their spending exceeds their uh, revenue from their job payment. And so something has to give. 
in the United States with poor people, for a lot of people, families, it's a choice between looking after your parents for health care or paying high tuition for university. And governments are now faced with this dilemma. The spending in Canada uh, by the provincial or federal government, the target has to be the people that have the least amount of money. And that's a tricky policy <laughs> issue to design. And, and uh, some of it has been wasted. So when we hear the Prime Minister talk about in the throne speech and in comments later, this is not the time for austerity. Uh, we've got to spend, spend, spend. A, it, it doesn't seem to be really working. And, and I was looking at some other reference points. This book in 2019 by some Italian economists called Austerity, When It Works and When It Doesn't. And they kind of go to this issue that taxing the rich, which always seems popular, really doesn't work. But cutting spending does. But if politically you're not in favor of austerity, then what? Well, there's two sides to this. You know, in, in economics, it's supply and demand. And, and um, but the, the, Britain is a better example of austerity. Okay. When you squeeze certain programs, um, health care, education or whatever, um, OK, you save money. The problem in a lot of these programs is that they have second order consequences or longer term consequences. So when people don't go to a doctor or don't um, uh, visit a nurse or whatever uh, to treat illnesses, then a year or two later, certain problems happen. Right. The other side of that is that when governments spend, are they spending on a consumption basis or an investment basis? So infrastructure, issues like infrastructure, like education, are really um, proper spending because it's an investment where you get returns over time. The short-term issue of, of, of austerity during this COVID uh, example, um, I think government just have to spend, but they have to target the spending to, to increase aggregate demand. The last thing you want is giving money you know, to, to people making over hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, right? And and companies, the, you know, so, some of the companies in Canada um, have huge savings. They're not investing, and so that, that gets into the tax issues of of targeting um, the companies that need it. In a lot of cases, that really means small business. Well, that's and I would rather I would rather err on the side of small business and farmers rather than big companies. And the that, idea that big companies need money, I think, is an error. That's that's the issue we're seeing now. The governments are talking about maybe bailouts for smaller carriers and whatnot. Uh, but what we've seen through this whole piece, and I look at the world through the Saskatchewan lens, um, no direct aid in any way for farmers, not that a lot of them would, would take it anyway, but all they got was the ability to increase their debt load. They could borrow more and pay back more slowly. And nothing really for the energy sector, which is still a job creator, which puts money in the hands of the small businesses that are, that are part of that industry, trucking, hauling, all of those things. Um, or the Ontario steel industry. Or, or the steel industry, all the things that are part of that whole sector. 
So the money hasn't gone there. So are are we just doing exactly the wrong thing? Well, I think that's an, an overstatement, but um, uh, good. <laughs> you know, I, but no, but I, I think the fact that um, you know, energy. Um, the good news is about the, the energy industry is that many players in the energy industry understand companies like Shell and BP the transformation taking place in the energy industry away from coal and away from certain forms of oil. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the specific Canadian problem is we've got huge reserves in in the Western Sedimentary Basin, which really means Alberta and Saskatchewan, but it's not near tidewater. And how do you get that the energy in the short term, the tidewater, and this gets into pipeline politics, and this is immensely partisan and unfortunately it's zero sum you know you win or i lose and i think that's a terrible position to get into and uh, this has been a a 15 year old problem in canada so now let's move to the next phrase the japanification that you have written about this is uh, one of your many areas of expertise in my mind that never sounds like a good thing when you say the Japanification of the U.S. economy, or maybe even the uh, the Canadian economy, because we associate that with with low birth rates and businesses that are not investor friendly, et cetera. And and even though there's lots of savings, not a not a strong economy. So, what do you mean when you say the Japanification of the economy? This is a phrase. Um that started with Japan, but it actually has a a global problem. Um, And it's fundamentally the demographics of a country. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, If you take Canada, or if you take the province of Saskatchewan, or the province of Prince Edward Island. Your home um, turf. Well, uh, essentially what you mean when you're looking at the demographics is three groups. Let's say um, under 18, so young people, over 65, people in retirement or ready retirement, and the third group between 18 and 65, which are the working population. Now, you could adjust that. It might be 24 to 65 or whatever. The problem in Japan is a low birth rate and Almost no immigration. Right. The other side of demographics, which applies to virtually all advanced countries, is that people are living longer, and especially in Japan, where women and men now live to 86 and 84. And Japan has more people over 100 years old than any country in the world. But this issue of demographics is now extended to uh, Italy, most Western countries, and surprisingly, China. And this is called the aging of the economy. And of course, China has a particular problem of the one-child problem, which they've abandoned. Now. How do you get around that? Obviously, in today's world, the easiest way, but the most politically difficult in Japan, is immigration. 
So when I was in Ottawa, uh, I appealed with the Prime Minister and I appealed with several cabinet ministers that Canada was the only country without immediate access to 100 million people. And as a G7 country in population, we were too small. So various people, including Flora McDonald, who came from Cape Breton, you know, she was elected in Kingston, but she actually came from Cape Breton, mm-hmm. right. knew, that, knew that Atlantic Canada was facing this problem. And that was then. It, it's a huge problem today in Atlantic Canada where we have few immigrants coming to each province and the population is aging, but more and more people from Atlantic Canada that live in Toronto or Regina or Calgary or Vancouver, what are they doing in retirement? Moving back to Atlantic Canada. So go back to these three groups, young people, say up to 24 or 18, whatever um, um, calculation you want to use. These people, require services mostly from government. The obvious one is education. The people over 65 in retirement or facing retirement also face need government services, most dramatically healthcare. The people that pay for all this is the working population, roughly between 24, let's say, and 65. Well, in Japan, The working population is declining and more people are retiring. And what does that mean? More government services. And this is what's happening around the world in all advanced countries. Now, if you look at specific examples, uh, using Europe, okay, you got the massive aging in um, Italy, almost identical issue of Japan. What's Britain done? The whole Brexit strategy is basically an anti-immigration policy. Donald Trump, stripped of a lot of whatever nonsense that he goes on about, it's basically an anti-immigration policy. And what is that going to do to the United States? It's going to squeeze the middle class and the working population. That's exactly the point. That is exactly the point. And when you get a little more technical, who do you find most of these immigrants are? Uh, They're very work conscious. They're very entrepreneurial. They're very family oriented. um, And for the most part, they don't want government services. And if you look at Western Canada um, in the history of this, um, Western Canada is loaded with immigrants, basically thanks to Clifford Sifton in the Laurier government following up on John A's thing to populate the West. But let me give you a statistic that will will kind of shock you. In every decade from 1870, 1880, up until the 1950s, the new immigrants coming uh, coming to the United States, in each decade, the new immigrants coming to the United States exceeded, just the immigration, exceeded the entire population of Canada which explains why the United States today is 330 million and we have only 33 million or 35 or whatever. So thanks to government policy, it started under Pearson, but it accelerated under Pierre Trudeau and it's been followed by every prime minister since, we've opened up the number of new immigrants. And that essentially means the following. 
if you were, as an immigrant, if you were young, single, and educated, come to Canada. There's family issues, uh, um, but, but essentially, we've opened up our immigration policy, and that is very good news for Canada. But unfortunately, if you go back to Japan, Prime Minister Abe faces two problems. And I had breakfast with him, um, say, four or five years ago um, when he just became prime minister. Um, in Japan, you have got a rural group of people, mostly old, who are against immigration. Right. It's just a political problem. But under Abe, if you look particularly at Tokyo, there are now more than a million and a half foreign people working and loving working in Tokyo. If, if you talk to some of the politicians, they would double that and triple that. But you go to the rural areas, you get feedback. And this is exactly what's happening in the United States. So this is what... If- that's what fundamentally, that's what Japanese Japanification means for Western countries. So when you when you're talking about Japanification of Western cu- countries and you're hoping that this will mean opening up to immigration, realizing that the other system does not work, the other approach. It, it doesn't work. And and the issues, though, um, accelerate. So right. Japan, for example, everybody and the Senate should be studying this issue um, because the immigration is only one aspect of it. Um, but it affects education, it affects uh, medical issues, uh, medical science. So, for right. example, why why do Japan uh, live longer than most other countries? Um, it's partly the diet, it's partly nutrition, it's partly their food system, it's partly a superb medical system. Um, the fact is that if you look at, say, roughly the population between Tokyo and, Yo- and Yokohama and, and uh, Kyoto and, and Osaka, uh, 90 million people, they are the richest, best educated, high disposable income of any country in the world. The rural areas is a different story. Yeah, well, which is not unlike what we're seeing uh, in the West as well. Okay, I've got a well, couple you, of. But your own province, Saskatchewan. Yeah. If you look at if you look at the four um, globally rich resources of um, Saskatchewan, um, it should be attracting millions of people from around the world. Absolutely. Whether it's oil, gas, uranium, uh, wheat, or whatever. But what's Japan? What's Saskatchewan's problem? Maintaining its existing population. What's New Brunswick's problem? New Brunswick is losing 50,000 people a year. The same issues affecting Newfoundland. And we, and we don't have we we don't have sufficiently aggressive strategies, particularly for example, in Atlantic Canada, to attract immigration. Okay, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions here um, as our time is flying by. So you said something to me just as we were beginning to speak about the debt in Canada now equals the entire government's budget as it was in the mid-1980s. Is that, a, is that an accurate statement? I, I am simply shocked at the level of, of, of uh, um, deficit. Um, when, when we, so it's um, deficit or debt? Well, the debt is just the accumulation okay. of deficit. Right. <laughs> and, and, and in eight, 1984, the accumulated uh, debt of Canada was roughly $800 billion, which includes the provincial governments and the federal governments and the grand corporation. Um, 
So, uh, and we had a budget roughly of 175 billion, and we inherited a deficit, annual deficit of 37 billion. And we had to keep the deficit, uh, annual deficit, under $30 billion to please the bankers because this would affect the exchange rate. And as you know, um, uh, a lower exchange rate relative to the US dollar or mm-hmm. the yen or whatever impacts uh, not only inflation, but you have to import a lot of goods, including food, and it it makes those goods much more expensive. Okay. So so, so today's today's deficits with the COVID thing and affecting around the world um, are just stunningly high and almost equally the entire um, uh, uh, budget of, of Ottawa in 1984. That's a stunning number. You've also written, um, well, not really recently, but in, in 2017. So I don't know what you think today. Is it, should we be trying to do a trade deal with Japan at this point? There's so much controversy about our relationship with China, uh, not just the hostage ta- uh, situation, but everything else surrounding that uh, Huawei, you name it. Is Japan another place to go for us? Well, we're part of the TPP, um, and this was badly managed under the Harper government, and I write that in my new book on on my years in Ottawa. Um, We were the last two. When when, um, TPP started, um, it was an American initiative, and stupidly by the Americans, it excluded both Japan and Canada as G7 members. Uh, But when Canada, when, um, when, Japan applied. Uh, we were the last to endorse uh, Japan as being part of TPP. Then, when Trump gets out of TPP, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, Japan and Abe uh, led that charge. Um, so we are now part of the TPP process. What we have to do is to get back where we were under, um, particularly start with Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, but Brian Mulroney in particular, uh, but followed up by Kretchen is to have regular meetings of the Canadian Prime Minister with the Japanese Prime Minister and several ministers, including the Finance Minister, and to see exactly how we can work together, including on issues like the Arctic, where the, the Japanese have a ton of um, expertise and knowledge. Uh, the whole area of science and technology. But, but for example, uh, you don't have to be much of an expert to know the the strength of the Japanese car industry. And, you know, we're kidding ourselves that the future of the car industry in Canada is dependent on Detroit. Detroit is in terrible shape. Right. Uh, and, and But this applies to about 10 new industries, including, by the way, energy. In what way? The, the Japanese are the experts not in um, taking, it also true in mining, not okay. in um, uh, getting the resource out of the ground, but refining the resources um, to make advanced materials. So, for example, we are a big mining con- country. Where are we in the new fields, uh, technological fields of advanced materials? Nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, hockey sticks, uh, new hockey sticks aren't made with wood, for example. They're made with fiber optics or, or, or uh, fiber materials or, or aluminum and, and different kinds of wood. Some of this stuff is made in, in Asia. Um, a lot of it's made in China. 
look look at look at the aluminum industry. Um, in the old days, we were dependent on airplanes using aluminum. Well, if you look at uh, new um, planes today, it's it's all um, new fibers. That's advanced materials. If you look at companies like Uniglo, right, which most young people know about, some of their clothing is all made with these new new um, advanced yeah. materials. We'd- and where are we in Canada on that? Almost nowhere. The 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 uh, fortunate conversation we had uh, recently with the Saskatchewan Research Council said Saskatchewan is second only to China when it comes to rare earths. So we're going to have a lot of those uh, rare earth minerals to help us continue to build technology. Um, well, well, there there's a very good example because, for example, a Toyota Prius uh, and a lot of the new automobiles made in Japan require these these. Um, uh, uh, rare earths or precious metals, yep. and Saskatchewan has a ton of expertise in this field. That's only one example. Um, the, the food sector, the, the, the things going on in the food sector around the world, and you know, I spent time in France, is unbelievable. And where the hell is Canada? I know we've got we've got a few things. AGT Foods, we're we're. Starting to sell lentil, not starting. We are selling lentils around the world to feed India and other places. But uh, you know, Charlie, you've just raised so many issues in my mind here, and I know you've got um, a new book coming out about not only your time in Ottawa, but but the the history of public policy. And there's another thing you've written about too, which is the phenomenon of zombie companies. And I really want to come back to you on that. So uh, we. We will do another conversation with you very soon, I hope. Thank you so much uh, for today. No problem. Great to be with you. I know these podcasts about economics can get kind of dense and complicated, but I think it's important. So if you're interested in this topic, please engage with us on social media. And if you're willing, please rate the podcast. I'm told it really matters. 